Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. I hope you are all having a very happy holidays and new year, and the final episode of 2023 is quite a doozy. I'm calling these two conversations Backstage Babble Minis because I'm fortunate to talk to many artists who I respect and admire, but sometimes they simply don't have the time for a full-length interview. That being said, what these two artists did share was so valuable that I didn't want it to get lost. So I'm happy to present my interviews with two Tony-winning Broadway legends, Time Daly and Ben Vereen. Their combined credits include the iconic Broadway productions of Pippin, Gypsy, Masterclass, Jesus Christ Superstar, Hair, Rabbit Hole, and so many more. Although this conversation was recorded before the production was announced, Miss Daly will also be returning to Broadway this spring in a revival of Doubt. And now, without further ado, here's my interview with Time Daly, followed by my conversation with Ben Vereen. Uh-huh. And you catch me in the middle of a sentence workshop. Uh, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I'll, I'll be done before, you know, Santa gets in the air. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. How about you? How have you been? I'm good. I like the, I like all of these festivals are the same, you know, uh, the solstice and Hanukkah and uh, Santa Lucia and Christmas. It's all about the return of the light. Right. It's all about, it's a festival because the, because the days are going to get shorter and the lights come back. So, so my advice to you, youngster, is uh, invite the light. Ah, <laughs> that is great advice. It is. And so... What well, can I do for you? Oh, well, I'd love to begin by asking you, um, how did you first become interested in theater and in performing? Uh, my parents were both uh, actors. And all of their friends were actors, and they tried to make theaters together. So I was born into the family business uh, when both of them were very, very active. So I didn't know anything else. Then you know, there wasn't anything else to be interested in. <laughs> <laughs> right. And what was it like to be performing with them and sort of having those two relationships at the same time? Well, I did perform with both of them at very much later on. Uh, um, I worked with my mother. She got a dispensation from Equity to do the production when I was, I think I was 16 or 17. Or so. uh, and then I, uh, now if we have to get into names, I won't remember it. Uh, um, she forgot, it may come to me. Anyway, we did that together, and I worked with my dad a couple times on uh, television. And uh, it was interesting. I watched them work, though. And, uh, it was fun. I, I remember when my dad, we, we talked about the scenes. I, I went to his trailer at MGM. I was doing a medical center. A good old uh, you know, nepotistic job. 
<laughs> and uh, and I went with him to talk about the scene coming up, and, and he was in those days they had the trailer on the set, the little baby trailers that were on the huge old MGM set. And I said, you know, Dad, we're talking about acting. We're talking about first time we're talking about it. He said, of course, we're working together. Why would you talk to anybody about acting if you weren't working with them? You want to talk? <laughs> like that. Right. And where did you begin to study and train more formally with acting and all that? I did participate in community co- community college, but that was a school. It was a, a summer thing uh, that had programs, acting programs in the summer, which was voluntary. I went to the American Shakespeare Festival in Connecticut when I was an apprentice there. You weren't allowed to act, but you got to watch everybody when I was 15. Um, um, I went to Granite University uh, to work with Jasper Dieter, who was a great old gentleman in the theater, but he was only there for one semester, which I didn't know going in. So then I quit and went to school, uh, begged with uh, parents to send me to trade school, acting school, uh, at the American Music Board for that again. And so I did that for two years and graduated. And uh, um, the, the, the American Music School Dramatic Academy still goes on. It was very new then. I think they'd only had about two or three uh, years. Uh, it had just begun. But um, yeah, that's where I got my proper school. So did you um, grow up in New York City? Or if not, when did you decide to move there? Well, I, I was, uh, my parents quickly moved after I was born. It was just after the war in 46 in the winter. They quickly moved out of Wisconsin to New York, to first Long Island, and then Manhattan. Um, then we went to Europe for a while, and then we came back. But, so I, I, I grew up in a lot of places. You'll find in this business that there's a lot of army brats and a lot of active kids, too. Uh, kids who get dragged around from place to place. So, um, um, yeah, um, well, I always, I, yeah, we came, when we came back, we lived outside New York City, in a, in a Rockland County up the river, like a lot of folks did. Um, we weren't, in the early days, they said Westchester County, but we were not fancy enough to be Westchester. We were Rockland. Uh, <laughs> uh, my parents and, and, and Patrick Clark's parents were the only two uh, Democrats in the entire county, registered Democrats. Um, anyway, so my dad could, could commute into New York City and, and work on the stage, which he did not They and also work in, in television, which was in its uh, New York heyday then. After the war, you know, in the early 50s and, and beginning of the 60s, the, the decade was, uh, New York was feeding um, the television more than the uh, West Coast was. Were there performers who you looked up to specifically? or? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Well, initially I looked up to all of them. They were doing that thing, you know. It was so amazing to me. We sat down in the dark. They stood up in the light. And told a story, you know, and I was just taken by that. My parents did it too. When we used to watch them in stock, when they did summer stock, 10 plays in 10 weeks, all up and down the East Coast, you know, they'd come, they'd, we'd get dropped off as kids um, to the usher, and we had our theater manners, and we'd watch them. There somebody's come on the stage looked a little bit like your father or your mother, but they were wearing different clothes and had different color hair, and they were talking in different Givens and you know, then they came back after the show, and it was your parents again. I thought that was the damnedest trick. <laughs> I thought it was fantastic. So I looked up to everybody. <laughs> I, I I loved actresses, and I loved actresses that were that were uh, uh, 
smart and funny and and uh, not so much glamorous. The glamorous ones were too intimidating to me. Um, oh. presence, uh, Gloria Foster. Oh my God, Gloria Foster. And that's not the that's not the business of Charlie. Number. Um, Diana Sands. Well, you're not here. They come. Oh. Diana Sands. I wanted to be. Um, yeah. And 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 Stapleton. She, you know, I like the truth tellers. Right. The ones that you know are. Um, a Taste of Honey was the play that, that I was trying to talk about before, and that actress, what was her name? The girl with the green eyes, she said she was a, I never saw on the stage, though. My proof was always stage actors, not so much um, movie actors. Because uh, because for me, the experience of, of being in the same room with a storyteller, or indeed being the storyteller in the same room with the listeners, is entirely different than being a shadow on the wall. Oh, yes. Whether you're in a small box or a big box. The difference between being in a theater full of live bodies and a theater full of live bodies looking at a, a frozen time on the wall is, is huge for me. And when you were um, getting your start as professionally and auditioning and everything, did you find that auditioning came easily to you? or? Um, I sort of figured out how to like auditioning, but it took a long time. Um, I auditioned over and over and over again. Once we moved away from New York, that's my, me, my young husband, and my brand new baby. And we're out here trying to, when I was trying to be in the theater. I auditioned for eight years at the Marte Perform without turning over a job. Ah. Okay, I said, hello, I live in Westwood. Um, <laughs> but, but I knew this casting guy very well. I've told this story a lot before. It's the first time, I think. Uh, Hunt, Gordon Hunt. His, his daughter is Helen Hunt. Wonderful actress. And Gordon was the, was the uh, casting director for for Gordon Davidson at the Mark Taper, and I go down faithfully and try out for everything, you know, and anything they had, anybody remotely in my uh, range of of people when I was twenty two years old. <laughs> and um, and, um, and I went down one time. I really wanted to do. There was going to be two, so there was going to be kind of a rolling rep with three players. And I really want to see a play called Ashes, and I really want to see a play called The Three Sisters. And uh, uh, I was nervous because, you know, they knew me and sort of to say hi. At any rate, uh, Gordon Davison came, Gordon uh, Hunt came down to pick me up out of the waiting room, you know, where you're sweating before you have to go and beat the judges, right? And right. He, he said, How are you doing, time? I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. I want this one. I'm very. He said, oh, for heaven's sake, time. It's a chance to act on Thursday. And I thought, wow. Here I am. <laughs> and babies and husband. And I thought, you know, doing the laundry and doing the carpool and doing the everything. And yes, this is a chance to act on Thursday instead of doing anything else. And it completely freed me up for feeling the pressure of uh, getting a job. Although there were, you know, there it would be great. It was great to get jobs. It was great to make money. You know, and I had a little, little bit in, in television and stuff. And uh, but to get that, the um, hmm. anyway, you understand the point of the story, right? So I taught the young actors, and, and the other the other thing about auditioning is uh, it's it's important if you can figure out your method to when you go in the room, pay less attention to what they think of you and more attention to what you think of them. You know, it's a kind of like an early acting exercise. Get off yourself and get on the other guy. 
you look them over and see if you want to spend any time working for that woman or that fellow over there, you know, however many of them. If you can get off your own nervousness and your own trepidation. And, well, it sounds very hippy-dippy, but, you know, get present in the room. Be there. Look at them. Look at the room. Look how it looks. Look what they've got on their desk. Uh, uh, assess your desire to work with them as much as you can rather than be nervous about uh, whether or not they like or want to work with you. Right. Is that fair? Yes, definitely, and it, it's great advice, too. <laughs> cool. Well, I, I, don't, I don't like advice, particularly uh, to give it or to take it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do like uh, people's experiences. You know? Here's my, my biggest advice about the Go to the theater. Go watch and observe. You have to have make a little fund. You're 15. Now, it's a good time to start. You start a fund. You save your little pennies and nickels and dimes because it's so sweet and expensive. And you get yourself to uh, see as much theater as humanly possible. It doesn't matter. All, it doesn't always have to be Broadway. And I'm, in fact, sometimes that's the, the least good example. But there's, there's theater all over available to you. And you should be studying it. Oh, yes. Even much more than the people who do it. <laughs> and so, I know um, you made an early appearance off Broadway in The Butter and Egg Man when you were starting out, and how did that sort of come about? I was working as a human stapler, stapling together cosmetic samples in the village. And I had an agent. We, had we turned over an agent, me, we meaning myself and my young husband, we both went to school together at AMDA and graduated. And out of that, we got we signed with a with an agent. Um, and we were never allowed to call. He said, "I'll call you. I'm the agent. I will call you when something's going on. Do not check on me." Jay Wolf. He was brilliant. Anyway, he called him. He said, uh, "Get over to the to the Cherry Lane, um, right this minute. They're, they have to replace an actor." And I, you know, dropped everything and uh, my fellow human stapler. Yeah. <laughs> And got over there and uh, and read, and uh, then a couple years ago, about sixty years. Wait, wait a minute, it was fifty years, I guess. Uh, Kim and Kim Daly and I just played there again. I went back to the Terry Lane and we played a play that was written for us uh, two seasons ago or three, and before COVID, before COVID, so oh. twenty. Um, anyway. <laughs> Um, it was it was amazing to me to make that full circle in New York. It was really fun. It was really fun. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so Butter and Men, uh, they lost a girl. There was a, a young lady who was a contract player to at Universal, and she was going to lose her contract if she didn't go back and do that movie with Dean Martin. Um, you know, she would be punished. She would have broken her contract. So she went back. She had a contract for a, 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 a career for a while. Uh, um, and they needed to, you know. So I read, and they said, go upstairs and wait. And I listened to about five other girls read. And they said, come downstairs. And, I, and you know, do you want to go to work? And I said, yes, I do. I called my young husband and said, bring me my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I, needed, I needed the right shoes to get on the stage. I still do. Uh, and what was it like to work with Bert Shevelov, who was the director on of that show? <laughs> she was she was legendary, but not just I mean in theaters. 
this is the, I, I had they already done um, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. I don't think so. At any rate, but he had been, but he had been at at college, um, at doing the college shows in in one of the colleges that my mother went to. <laughs> he had written a freshman show or something, and which was actually very much like funny thing happened. Oh, it's forum. It was a, it was a satire, it was a stand up, you know, and uh, and so. And while I was aware of Bert Schiller, uh, he was wonderful. He, I mean, literally, it was. I had to go in in under a week. They needed to. They were opening. They brought their girl, and they put me in. And uh, David Christmas, there's a name for the cast. Who's in the cast? Phil uh, uh, Brunt, very well known uh, character man at that time. Oof, what a <laughs> difficult colleague he was. <laughs> Um, and I can't remember the name. There was a lady who was who had been sort of a lady of a certain age who was kind of the titular star. I'm not titular. Yeah, well, titular. Not that means your name like the title. I mean, uh, uh, the, the star of note. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was thrilling. You know, it was thrilling. I had, we had to go to that. We got reviewed in the New York Times. I got a nice mention from Walter Kerr. And lift off that for the next six months. I was so, you know, <laughs> oh, yes. I made my debut at Jerry Lane. <laughs> and how do you feel that the off-Broadway scene has changed from when you started out to coming back recently and everything? Well, now, this may be a made-up story, but the word out then in those days was that Walter Kerr was the first of the frontline critics, I mean, and there were seven papers there, you know, uh, uh, in those days, seven daily papers and stuff, they all did reviews. But the frontline critics, he was the first to come down to the Cherry Lane to witness something that was beginning to be called off-Broadway. But the term had only been sort of, you know, made up a couple of seasons before, perhaps. Um, and, uh, it, it, yeah, it... it it felt like real theater to me. I mean, I was a kid. I, I was just in my 20s. And uh, and then it was about change because my young husband had a chance to work in the, in the West Coast. And so we moved, we moved away uh, just shortly after the birth of our first kid. So, you know, the, the, the business, the business uh, dictates to you what's going to happen for a very long time. It's it's very rare that the, that you get to dictate anything to the business. <laughs> and do you often like to read reviews of your own work, or? Um, I did slightly for a long time, and then it came to the point where I gave it up. I I kind of had a you know I had a, a big flop, and I'm like, don't read, don't don't fine, don't read these. I said forever. She said no, don't read them ever. <laughs> They either encourage you or they discourage you. They either kind of puff you up a little bit or they break your heart. Uh, um, they they can be damaging uh, in the beginning, I guess, uh, um, but they can also be instructive from time to time. They're not always wrong about how you sunk up the joint. You know, uh, that's, that, no, no, it's important to learn that stuff. Um, I tell you what is interesting. Uh, you might like this. I have a friend who's not really very theater savvy, but he says he believes that all plays and, and shows should be reviewed by both a uh, female critic and a male critic. Uh -huh. 
as of that. <laughs> I think it's a very interesting idea. Uh, critics, mm, actors are, I mean, when they hurt you and, and damage your, your, your capacity to make a living by, by, by stiffing you and all that stuff, that's um, a pretty shitty way to make a living. Uh, <laughs> but, but they also sell tickets and they also can help us go, you know, go forward. I, I don't. summer that fall I think the next year and what was it like to be making your Broadway debut and, and having it was that? very frantic I was secretly pregnant with our first child uh-huh. I knew the show wasn't working it had been very hard out of town and indeed we were a flop we'd be closed in 10 days but what was there that was wonderful was Irene Popper and Rishi Castellana and John Boyd and Elena Karam and they we were the five. And those people were such um, wonderful actors. <laughs> and Papas was a big star, you know, in Greece. And, and while we were doing it, the junta happened in Greece, and she was cut off from her entire family, mother, father, grandfather, the whole family was was in, in quarantine in, in, in Greece, behind, behind, you know, war-torn Greece. It was very strange. My husband was away in Africa doing a, a movie called uh, The Comedians with a whole, another amazing cast. And uh, he came back to visit me. We were out of town in Chicago trying out the play and left me there pregnant. <laughs> but who knew? <laughs> and uh, uh, by the, yeah, then that, when the show was, was closed, when we were, you know, they put that notice up almost immediately after we opened. And um, that pretty well plan based Both the play, the play was written by um, Gilroy, Frank Gilroy. He wrote it. He wrote so something with roses, and 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 uh, and won Pulitzer Prize. Or you know, he got, he got great response to something with roses with lovely actor too, uh, a Mexican actor who's got an Irish name, uh, and. Um, Anyway, so this was the second shot, and it went, and it just tanked, you know, classically. We just went through an But so I got to go and recover with, with my husband George, who was in a movie in uh, Paris and uh, and Africa, and, and subsequently London, and uh, with the, and he was working with the following people. You ready? Yes. Ready. Don't guess. Don't guess too soon. Peter Ustinov, Alex Guinness, uh, 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 James Earl Jones, Cicely Tyson. 
Roscoe Lee Brown, um, Richard Burton, and Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, there's a couple of other people now, probably for that. Anyway, it was insane. We'd gone to work for the entire world. We were just fresh out of school. So it was a very, very interesting and uh, busy time. And I think about the, the space time that it took, it was like, what a whirlwind, you know. But we didn't know any better. We were, we were kids. Right. <laughs> and what do you think was the reason that that summer, that fall, wasn't able to run very long? Or? It wasn't good enough. <laughs> That's always the reason. You try as hard as you can. Everybody beats their brains out. They have, you know, it wasn't good enough. It was good. There was good stuff, and there was not so good stuff. There was some stuff that got fixed in Chicago, and there wasn't. I didn't know it then. Then I thought it was all my fault uh-huh. because I was a, a kid actor with a huge ego. You know, right. uh, but why did it? Why did it, the answer to? You know, you're very young, my friend, but it's great because you're very enthusiastic and excited. <laughs> That's good. But you know, um, the answer to why didn't it work was because it wasn't good enough. Why does, it work? Why does it work is the harder question. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one I have to go, what was it? I did that wonderful thing. I don't know what the hell I did. I'll never be able to do it again. You know? <laughs> so. Right. And so when you uh, moved to California, as you were mentioning with your husband, what do you like, if there's anything, what do you like better about the sort of entertainment world there than here? If- well, the focus is different. You know, I wanted to be on the stage. I thought I was leaving the stage forever and ever. Um, I did for, and I did for a very long time because the making of theater in Los Angeles is a whole different thing than the making of theater in New York. Different traditions, different stuff. Out here, you get up and, you know, do as much as you can in the daylight. Uh, <laughs> you have to wait till dark at the same time. <laughs> um, yeah. I've sort of given up those discussions about which is the better or the more artistic or the more uh, somehow holy place to work. The theater, the movies, television, you know, um, um, basically actors work is pretty much the same except for the physical being in the same room with the people. When you're, when you're doing movies or TV, um, um, you know, fast movies, everybody else on the, uh, that's around you is also doing their job. They're working too. You're all working. You're all working. The camera guy's working. The sound guy's working. The, you know, the, the coordinate, what do you call it, the continuity person is looking to make sure that, uh, you know, stuff matches. Um, and in the theater, you're working and the other people are listening and watching. That's different. And do you feel that, in addition to that difference, do you feel that there's a different sort of selection of roles available on TV or and and film? Oh well, sure, sure, because 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 on the other hand, despite all the magic of the movie, the movies are pretty literal. When it says when blowing up, you have to see blowing up, right? You can't you can't describe the Battle of Agincourt in the movie. <laughs> I mean, you can, but it's bad. but you know. But even even the, 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 the theater guys cut away to actual battling and slashing and cutting. The, the, the theater of, of the imagination, which is what Wells called the radio, as you know, you know, to look it up to to to, to envision it yourself. Yeah. Radio is more like reading books. 
that's between you and the author, right? It's very, very even exchange. Um, but the, I don't know. Even, if, yes, there are all different ways of using your energy and different ways. Well, you know there are different experiences by being in the, in the audience. The right. difference between having your breath taken away by a, by a, a you know, 18 sweating dancers <laughs> and, and having the, uh, you know uh, a dancer on top of the, the Alps twirling around <laughs> it's, it's a different um, they're all valuable some of them more lucrative than others some of them more fun to do than others I think uh, you know there's a lot of actors who have more fun perfecting and preening and being going back and having another take of something so that they can be uh, 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 flawless and ideal. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who like to do that. It's too hard. That's too hard. The glamour is too glamour hurts. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you get to do things and you don't get to do other things. And, and you, my, my biggest um, asset, I think, in terms of being an actor, was that I wanted to be of use. You know, I wanted to be useful to the play and to my audience and to my director and to my fellow actors. You know, I wanted to be part of part of, an, uh, of, a, of a, what I think of as a team sport. Right. That's definitely a great thing. And were there ever roles, be it on stage or on screen, that you turned down? And what would make you turn down a role? If um. I turned down the few discussing of, of, of chances to be in in expensive movies that were going to be horror movies. I don't, I'm not big on I'm, I'm, I'm horror stuff. I don't understand it as entertaining. I don't want to get into the mind of a serial killer. Thank you very much. I didn't do a lot of turning down. I mean, I, there's a lot of yes is the proper answer for young actors, for sure. Yes, 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 I will. Unless you violate somehow your sensibilities. I, about, you know, making horror movies, I was offered a movie uh, shortly after uh, the Clint uh, Eastwood uh, movie. They were going to spend $20 million, which is worth a lot of money in those days, uh, you know, to make a movie about people who ate dead human flesh and, uh, you know, slavering southern sheriffs and a whole bunch of complete cliches. And um, I, his agent said to me, he wanted to go be with them. And I said, I don't want to meet those people. I, really, I said, I'll tell you what, I, I don't, I, I want to call them. Let me call them, please, okay? Don't you, I'll report to them. Read this material, and I, I will report to them. And I called them up, and I said, hello, my name is Pinedary, and, and I'm not going to come in and meet with you guys, because I think that what you're doing is completely corrupt and disappointing. You could make five good movies with 20 million bucks instead of this, this awfulness. And I would not make a movie about people who ate dead human flesh if my children were starving. And I hung them. And I felt so good. I felt good for about four months. You know, I thought, because they, they don't actually have a gun to your head. You don't have to participate in stuff that you think is, is wrong, you know. And you can't change them. They're going to go ahead and make their movie. You know, you can't affect that. But you can either, you can decide whether to participate or not. You know, you know uh, that, that you can keep. And how did um, Gypsy first come about, which was, of course, your sort of return to the New York stage and all of that? Oh, uh, I, 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 we were coming to the end, uh, um, and Lacey, and I got a letter uh, from um, 
I got a rather good set of uh, Mr. Lawrence and Mr. Sondheim uh, uh, and uh, uh, and Mr. Mr. Stein. I can't think of anybody they'd rather have lead the 30th anniversary production of Gypsy in Kind Andy. This is a letter to my agent. He was so famous out of that. It was all over, except dripping out of the absolute gobsmack. I had no idea what they, you know, uh, and uh, I said, wow. I had done a, a, a guest shot on uh, Dolly Parton's show, which was a short-lived um, variety show, but because I was doing heavy makeup, I got to do a little thing on it. Anyway, Barry Brown had turned to his partner and he always said, what's the best time here? Uh, the, the stuff you find out afterwards is really interesting. I believe they had approached Liza. I believe they had approached uh, Bette Midler. I believe, I can't remember, there were a couple of men who were thrown around, particularly Liza and Midler. And they didn't want to do uh, eight shows a week. or they, they, they couldn't, they didn't let me happen. So they get down the list and they get to me. And uh, I said, wow, uh, you know, I had sung on the party show. And I said, I'm so, I was so I was so flattered, and yes, I would love to come and meet with them in New York City. So then came the follow-up letter. Miss Daly's audition for Mr. Stein and Mr. Sondheim <laughs> and Mr. Lawrence will be at this appointed time at the Wintergrove Theater. So the invitation of the of that journey for an audition, which <laughs> I was I was I've been in the business long enough that it made me laugh. <laughs> you know, oh, okay, I get it. So this is how this is going to be. Um, and I did go in an audition, and it was a bumpy road, uh, including a, well, that's, there are, these, are, these are long stories. But at any rate, uh, you know, so I got the job. They finally relented. We did 15 cities uh, uh, in, you know, on, on tour before we went to New York, which was actually our producer's way of trying to make back some money in case I fell on my face. You know, so you can make the money on the road first, and then go in to recoup something before, you know. And uh, what it turned out to be, though, effectively, was several uh, months of practice for me and a company. Um, so by the time that we had played together all over the country in various different um, theaters and stuff, we had had our time on the road, and we had, we had, we had a very tight and very good, ready show to, to open in New York City with. And uh, so I was, I was grateful for that tour, ultimately. Uh, it was not a particularly easy, but it was very much felt like a, a old-fashioned theater. <laughs> and it's an old-fashioned show, you know. It's a great show. Uh, um, and I loved working with, with people who were smarter and more experienced than myself in musical theater. And yeah. I would love to, um, if, if you'd want to talk about it, I would love to know more about some of the long stories of, of getting the part originally in. Well, as you know, I got the part, I went and auditioned, uh, and uh, uh, then I, they said, well, you've got the part, and then some weeks later, I got invited back into New York because Barry Brown, the producer of the lead, said that there were some, a couple of uh, um, people who were interested in putting money in the show and would I have dinner with them. And I said, well, I'm sure. And then the, that turned into, uh, he liked me about that, because really they had invited all of the people from CCG, which would be in this congregate of um, theater companies over the, from the country. It, many of these places I was supposed to tour, right? Uh, the show was supposed to tour. For me to re-audition at the, at the end. When, and I found myself in the middle of an audition when I realized, oh, I'm, I've lost this job. What, the, what is this? 
like of working with Arthur Lawrence, who was famously sort of a difficult person then? It was sort of difficult. And it was also transcendently interesting. I learned a great deal. He's punishing just now. I just finished reading a oh there's a book you'll like maybe I think you're not too young if you love all this uh, uh Mary Rogers' book. Oh Don. yes I read it too. I <laughs> yeah so I I was aware because that was my you know the 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 zeitgeist of my growing up. Of all those people and all those shows, and, you know, we were, we were, dad was, dad was in that world, wanted to be deeper into that world, and we were living in the countryside. Um, um, having done the gypsy, what sort of, I know you don't like advice, but <laughs> what sort of tips would you give to anyone else playing that great role? And Well, the, the rules are the same. If you can find yourself in a room with people who know more than you do, and if you couldn't listen and 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 take in uh, uh, what they what they know and apply it to your own stuff, that's wonderful. And sometimes I I I love to be in, in the, around people with more experience and more articulateness and more uh, more of, a, of an understanding of their what we're up to than I am. It's a learning process always for actors. Actors have to go back to A, like they know nothing. To start to put on a new personality with a new set of uh, experiences and a new set of circumstances to live in and stuff. And beyond uh, the very last show I'd love to talk about too, plus us out is Masterclass and what it Masterclass. <laughs> and what it was like to be playing Martin Collis and, and working with Terence McNally and all that. Well, the first is the play. First is the play. McNally is, is one of my great privileges to have met and known a little bit and loved a lot. You know, I had a great time with him. Uh, uh, he loved actors, and he um, called me up quite out of the blue uh, to say that, that he wanted me to, to do Maria for him. And I was, once again, very surprised. It was the 4th of July weekend. I was with some friends. 
and uh, my girlfriend rang it, and I picked it up, and, and I, you know, we're launching around in uh, kind of public school, and I said, oh, oh, oh hello. Oh, hello, Terrence <laughs> McNally. How are you? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but he, he, um, why is he so, he told me that, he told me he sat up in the middle of the night and said, Ty Naley. Um, I guess he'd seen some, oh, Jesse, he's seen Jesse and liked it a lot. Huh? But that was, yeah, that was long ago, too. At any rate, uh, yeah, and I made all my objections to him, and he really helped me to, to, um, to do that impersonation. I'm not a very good impersonator. I think there's a lot of actors now who are excellent impersonators. They, they take on all the exterior qualities of, uh, you know, character with, with, um, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not much of an imitator or an impressionist. I, I, uh, so, but I studied her and I, and I had my friend Stephen Wadsworth, who was director that I worked with and, and loved a lot and, uh, who also works at Juilliard and has done for 40 years, you know, who knows that world very well. So Terrence accepted the, the idea of Stephen as a director and, um, and we went to work on it. And of course it was, uh, uh I, I love the material so much. I have loved Joe Cosma and, and uh, um, Audra so much in that play. I've been, you know, pasted to my feet. I never saw anybody else do it. I know a number of people did it. I think that, uh, that, uh, that nice actress who was married to him. It's just like old people competition. Uh, I know that, I know that, uh, uh, what her face Tyler Pone did it. Oh. And um who else? Anybody's name. At any rate, uh so yeah, it was, we went to London, which was really fun and interesting and uh um and came back again. We did it first in New York and then to London. I think the way to do plays now really is, is, is uh, to go to London and be a hit there and then bring it into New York. My final question that I'd love to ask is just a general question. What do you think makes an ideal director to work with? And they have to set up a, a, um, an atmosphere where everybody will be working towards a singular goal, which is to make the show the best. And uh, some are better at it. You know, I figured it out about Arthur Lawrence. All I had to do with Arthur Lawrence was to yes her him to death. To just say yes sir, yes sir, yes sir, yes sir, and try it, you know, several times. You have to try anything that they say. But they have, there has to be a deal that you'll try it, and then they'll tell you, yes, do it, or no, don't do it. You know, directing. Uh, I'm not, I'm no longer tempted about directing. I, 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 I don't want to be the boss. I just want to be the one who, who figures out how to play whoever it is that other people believe that she's doing. That's my final shot on it. That's all I got. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such an honor. Oh, well, I'd love to begin by asking, um, how did you first become interested in theater? How did it begin for you? How did I become interested in theater? I needed work. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for a job. <laughs> they said, you looking for a job, kid? Just, yeah, come on in. <laughs> no, um, I got interested in theater, or did theater get interested in me? Um, I, you know, it's not, 
that I went looking for this. It sort of like blessed it upon me. I um, was busy doing my thing, not knowing that you can make a living doing what I'm doing. Um, and I was blessed to go to the high school for the performing arts. That's the first time I even heard about a block called Broadway. Because uh, I'm from Brooklyn and from quartet groups and church. And, and that was my world. And running with gangs, that was my world. And all of a sudden, I'm in high school performing arts. And right down the street is a place called Broadway, or the Sixth Street Theater, you know, and the Nyceum and all these, you know, right on the Court of Palace Theater, where I auditioned for Pitt. Of course, where I met for, uh, um, I met um, Bob Fossey for the first time, a show called Sweet Charity. So I think this it shows me. I didn't choose it uh, to answer your question. I've been blessed. Did your parents or did people around you sort of recognize that you had this great talent? And... My, my, my parents knew nothing about the theater. You know, we, they were, um, um, I don't know, what do you call them, domestics, you know? My mother worked as a maid. My father worked at a paint factory. You know, we didn't, um, we didn't say, <laughs> what, let's go to the theater, see any opening tonight. <laughs> That was happening in my neighborhood, <laughs> you know? So when this whole thing happened, my father thought it was, I was being abducted by aliens. And uh, my mother was the only one that stuck by me because she didn't know what's happening. But, you know, she knew that I had something and she wanted to, you know, like any mother wants the best for their child. And so she pursued and pushed me. And, um, and here we are, you and I are talking. Yes. And it's 50 years for Pippin. Wow. Yes. Wow. It is amazing. One by so fast. I know um, among your teachers at, at high school were George Balanchine and Jerome Robbins. And what did you learn from them? And what was it like? Well, they, well they, George Balanchine and, Jer and Jerome Robbins really were the auditors for me coming into school along with Martha Graham and, uh, you know, other great uh, um Patriots, or not patriots, but creators of art. Uh, and my teachers, people like David Wood, Norman Walker, you know, uh, Malinka, uh, Madame Malinka, uh, uh, Pavlova, um, you know, these are my teachers at, at the school. Um, so uh, I would have loved to, you know, when I learned who they were later, I would have loved to have gone to school with, <laughs> you know, if I got to do his work later on in life. But uh, no, I didn't have the school teachers, the teachers in school. <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> hey, who would you go to school with your teacher? Oh, George Balanchine, really? <laughs> <laughs> he was my high school teacher, you know. <laughs> no. No, Norman Walker, David Woods, you know. And then David Woods was the one who taught me about acting. He said, you cannot dance, modern dance, without telling a story. So find your story and the choreography and produce it on stage. So the audience walks away with substance, not just aerobics. <laughs> And so when you um, when you got out of school, did auditioning come easily to you? And did you start getting a lot of jobs right away? Or how did that? My first job was a thing called the Prodigal Son 
and the teacher from high school, Vinette Carroll, who's a wonderful director. She did a show called Your Arms Are Too Short, The Box With God, which was on Broadway. And she uh, noticed me at the high school recital. And she asked me to come do the Prodigal Son off Broadway um, at the Greenwich Music Theater. That was my first gig. And after that, um, my second gig was with uh, a guy named Bob Fosse in Sweet Charity. That's where we first met. And then later, many years later, I had just come to New York and here was an audition for a show called Pippin. And I didn't know if I'd get the show. As a matter of fact, I did not was caring about the show. I wanted to show how much I'd grown since he allowed me to come in the doorway of show business. So I went to the audition, not with the intent of becoming the leading player. Oh. I went to the intent of showing him how much I had grown. And what was he like to work with in a rehearsal room? He, he was amazing, he was amazing. He was a disciplinarian. Um, he wouldn't let you get away with anything. And I love that. He, he, he saw in all of the people he worked with the potential of your greatness. And he wanted that for you. And he, he pushed you to that point where it would you become comfortable in your own greatness. For each and every one of us who had the opportunity to work with Bob Fosse. That was the way he worked. And we all got that piece from him. And you see it, you see it everywhere. And who were some of your influences that you used with the leading player, your personal? You know, he said to me, because there was no role. I first read the script and my, my agent told me, he said, don't do this show. He <laughs> <laughs> said, there's 90% chance it won't work. And um, when I came to rehearsal, I read the first day and there was really, there was no role, you know, <laughs> for, the, for the cold read. And he said, don't worry about it. And he had me, you know, study people like Jimmy Slide and Bill Bojangles Robinson and Honey Coles and, and you know, these young, these, these elder dancers from Harlem, you know, the Harlem Renaissance. And he said, look at their style. He said, then we'll go to work. And I, I studied them. And then we went to work. And to um to go back a little bit from Pippin, I'd love to ask how hair came about, which was your already hair. I just come from London, and a woman named Joni Kovacs, who's an Asian at the time, was a friend of my second wife, my wife's. And um, Nancy, my wife, called her, and uh, she we hooked up, and she asked me to come to this audition. We're doing a show called Hair. I've heard about Hair in London because Lamont Washington, who was playing the part of HUD, had accidentally, you know, um, an overdose, but he had accidentally hallucinated on fire and burned himself pretty badly. And matter of fact, he, he, he passed away. And so as we knew about Hair uh, from that incident, but also Hair at that time was the voice of the, of the street and the young people. It was we young people, not you young people. We were about, I think it was about the fact that there was a, there was a cry for love and sincerity and change and a revolutionary 
of coming, a revolution of coming together. They were the Black Panthers. They were, you know, they were groups that were out there screaming for equality. And hair was a show that reflected this. There were the hippies. There was, you know, um, uh, it, it, it was it was an amazing time. And so you knew about hair and that that um, those things that were going on. And so when Joni came and took me to the audition. Everybody was there. Like it was like all that jazz. Everybody was there, you know, auditioning. And uh, that's where I met Tom Horgan. And Tom Horgan, who's a great visionary of the theater, amazing man. Matter of fact, Bob Fosse said, How did he do that? Because he would he broke the fourth wall. He did things that were just, it was amazing. I I, I wish everyone had the opportunity of meeting Tom Horgan. He was an amazing visionary, an amazing genius of a man. He and Bob Boss have been blessed. I've had two amazing um, angels to guide me on this path. And that's how I got hair. Oh, I must mention Bob, um, Bob, Michael Butler. Michael Butler, he was the one who had the vision and seeded the money for hair to have its birth and on to what we know it is today. It was he who said, I'll put money into this show when it was off, off Broadway and stayed with it till the end. So bravo, Michael Butler. And what do you generally look for in a director when, as you're mentioning, you've worked with so many great ones? And... Oh, well, their truth and their ability to allow you to create and then their ability to be like a Michelangelo to shape the, the the David out of the marble that you bring to them. Yeah. And I've had that opportunity with some great people. That's where they work. Yeah. Their sincerity and their, their, their commitment to the art of the piece. Do you like to suggest changes in the rehearsal room and be it to the script or to the direction or anything? Um, do I like to suggest changes? If changes are needed, yes. <laughs> of course. That's called collaboration. And if the director is uh, of any you know, vision, he would be open to it or she would be open to it. And we'd find the breath of that character in those moments. Because what I mean, bring to, this is an O'Horgan thing. O'Horgan would tell you to bring to me what you think the character is. Other directors say, this is the character. But in that, this is the character, use the actor, or as the beer, as I like to say, because acting is boring, but as the beer, we find a breath. And sometimes the breath is, is, is going in another direction and the director wants to go. But if the director is a visionary, a deep visionary, he'll go, let's go with that and see if it works. If it does work, we cut it back. Huh? Simple as that. Right. And another show that you worked on with Tama Horgan, of course, was uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, also yes. with Pippin. And what was it like yeah. to embody this famous? Um, well, Tama Horgan and Jesus Christ Superstar was, was uh, I'm sorry that uh, you didn't get a chance to see it, son. Um, Maybe they have some film of it at the Lincoln Center, but it was, it was, it scared everybody. 
it because he really hit bone bridges and stages going up and down and things flying at his feet. He was he's such a visionary. And, uh, you know, the tempters who, who, who taunted uh, Judas. And, you know, it was amazing. And Jesus coming out of a pyramid. <laughs> who does that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was fun. And, and also there was a guy that, that, who auditioned for me in hair in Los Angeles. And I brought him to New York. And, uh, and I hired him. They didn't want to hire this kid. And I hired him. And he came to New York. And one night, Jeff Finho didn't go on one afternoon. And this guy went on and stopped the show as Jesus Christ. And never got a chance to go on stage again. And that was Ted Neely. <laughs> Bravo, Ted. And, and, and with for, for Jeff Finho, he's, he's no longer with us, but... He, he was an amazing Jesus. Jesus Christ superstar. Brilliant. Um, what was it like to have some of the protests of the show too? And I know that was something that happened with that show because of the subject matter. And... Um, change is always going to bring protests. Enlightenment will bring protests when it's not understood. And at the time, telling the story of Jesus to a rock musical from Ted Rice and um, Tim Rice and, and Andrew Lloyd Webber um, was unconventional. And so there was a lot of people who felt offended by the subject matter, not knowing it's all part of the same story. Right. Um, so they were upset. But that didn't stop the show. Yeah. It had a message. And it was the same message that we still haven't gotten to today. <laughs> but and it, was, it was all part of it. And also, it was, it was a time when we were in the streets. You know, yes, you know, people were in the streets and they wanted to change. They were about change. And, you know, them protesting that particular show was interesting to me but it was all part of the time and how do you like to bring spirituality i know that's something you talk about into all the work that you do regardless of the subject matter it's all about spirit son spirit is all that there is we are vehicles of that and when we get ourselves out of the way the spirit can have its way in our lives, call it God, Allah, Buddha, Jesus, the great divine, the one divine, it's spirit. So whether you're aware of it or not, what moves you when you go to a show is spirit. The story, yes, the story is one of it's a good if the actors or the beers, I would say, being the characters, allow that to present itself by getting themselves out of the way, you have an amazing evening. And now, now the audience are lifted up to a place they don't know why they're so excited. You know, they love the performance, it moved them. They said, what moves you about a performance? It's because they did 
15 pirouettes? Because they hit a high F or C or or did they did some magnificent you know, monologue that, that touched your soul, but touching your soul, the spirit, it's that they went to a place inside you that you recognize. That's what we do. That's what. But you think you want this because it's a passion for you, isn't it? Right. Okay. Here's the truth. You have been chosen to be on this path. That's why we're talking today. You could be walking down the street or going down another path, but you chose, you were chosen. You think you chose, but no, you had nothing to do with it. You just echo. And you're allowing spirit to use you. You're being obedient to your most high desire, which is the God within you. You understand? Yes, I do. That's very interesting. Thank you. For yeah, we'll take you to where you think you want to go, but where you think you want to go is small compared to where the universe is going to take you. That's a wonderful way to think about things. And... It's the only way to think, son. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way to think. And so when you are um, in a show like Be Jesus Christ Superstar or Pippin, a show that runs a very long time, how do you decide when to leave it or how long to stay in it? Uh, you know, then move on. If you're lucky enough, <laughs> the show runs long enough. <laughs> Some people get a show for the entire run. I mean, you know, thank God. Panther with the opera. Yeah. How many years have been running now? I think 25 or, or even more. Yeah, you know, how many how many kids have gone to school? How many houses were built? How many, you know, kids went to college and you know, off that one show. You know, so God bless them. Support the arts. Yes. When you support the arts, here's the thing. When you support the arts, support you. And see what people don't understand is that. Art is life itself. Life is an art form. Even the great writers in the Bible said, in the beginning, God created. Did it say, did not say in the beginning, God manufactured. Created. So therefore, we are all creative aspects of that or whom created us. We're all walking, talking art pieces. And when we begin to recognize that truth about ourselves, we'll begin to treat each other with a little more love and respect. Matter of fact, I want this. <laughs> Send me this tape. I will, I will. <laughs> I'd like to ask one more question, if that's. If okay, that's sure, sure. Which is a question that I've been curious about, which is what do you think is the magic of Pippin as we approach its 50th oh. anniversary? And Pippin asked the question that we all ask at one point in our life. Who am I? What is my purpose? Where is my corner of the sky? How can I do magic? The spirit is saying you got magic to do. And, you, and, and the human part is saying, I've got to find my corner. I got to find my corner. Is it over here? Is it there? Is it in war? Is it 
But, you know, that's the human part. The representation of the human. The spirit is saying, you have magic to tell. The human, oh, you gotta burn, either you gotta, I'm gonna burn up doing this, or I'm gonna set and let life have its way with me, or spirit have its way with me. No, when you leave the circus, yeah. I think everyone resonates with that. I think everyone can identify with that. I go like, wow, yeah. I gotta find my corner of the sky. I got magic to do. Well, Definitely. Life is a science, you know. Oh, this time about living. Time to take a little from the world we're given. Time to take time. I'll be hoping just no time at all. Listeners, thank you for tuning in for this very special episode. And to those who have listened to any previous episodes this year, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. There are some fantastic surprises coming your way in 2024 that I can't wait to bring you. See you then.